sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour you'll find them at the back of the range and here's your host ben adelberg and welcome to the back of the range i am your host ben adelberg this is episode 246 Wanted to make sure you had another episode to enjoy this week before I head out to the Linger Longer Invitational in Greensboro, Georgia. Again, I'm very excited to get to this tournament to see Reynolds Lake Oconee. I've heard so much about it, never been there before. Also excited to see some of the best teams in the country like UNC, Vanderbilt, and Georgia. Special thanks to Mercer and Kennesaw State for having me there this week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you're following along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You know all of my social media channels, but make sure you're following Linger Longer Invitational on Instagram. You'll see some of the interviews and videos they capture, photos, you'll see it all. So make sure you're following on Instagram, Linger Longer Invitational. Now, speaking of Georgia... My last stop on my previous road trip was at the Jones Cup Senior Invitational. My guest on this episode is Matt Chagru, the new Jones Cup Senior Invitational champion. He prevailed in a two-hole sudden-death playoff against Alan Peake. Now, this won't be a surprise to the hardcore listeners here at the back of the range. We didn't do a deep dive into his victory at Sea Island. In fact, this episode is more about Matt's journey in the game of golf You know, he left the game after college for a bit. He eventually returned to competition and has found tremendous success on the senior amateur circuit. You know, that's not really an uncommon story. That happens all the time. Leave the game, come back. What makes Matt's story so unique? Well, two things, really. He changed his profession late in life, took a risk, and went with something that he was very passionate about. He also overcame a devastating injury that could have ended his playing career altogether. There is a lot in this episode. Um, It's a story about perseverance, positivity, following your passion. There's something in this episode for everyone, whether you're a senior amateur, maybe you're a college student just trying to figure out your path in life. There's a lot here. Now, there's also a link to Matt's website, mattshagru.com. So go check that out. See what services Matt offers as far as performance coaching. You're going to like this episode. Really proud of this one. Let's get right to it. Matt, you're at the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing great, Ben. It's great to be with you. Good to see you again. Uh, You know, last time, obviously, uh, was at Jones Cup Senior. You are the uh, reigning Jones Cup Senior Amateur Champion. And um, that was quite the experience, uh, my first time at the Jones Cup Senior, and uh, I've spent a lot of time at Sea Island recently, but um, now that you've had a few days, weeks to kind of uh, uh, decompress, get back to regular life, um, give me a fond memory before we jump into your incredible story. Give me, a, give me one of your fondest memories of, uh, of your time at the Jones Cup Senior. Well, it, you know, it was thrilling um it was thrilling to win that is such a strong field and um but i guess the the most memorable part has to be uh making the putt on the second extra hole yeah and then and then uh you know just giving a hug to my wife carolyn when on the green that was that was the moment for me i mean 
we she's been there all along through this journey in senior amateur golf and um we've been married for 11 years and um um and i if i can i'll tell you a little a sure. little bit about carol and uh you know when we were engaged um we were we were visiting the club that we were going to have the event at and we met there separately and a couple of the members who are these old sort of curmudgeon members <laughs> who've known me since i was 10 years old sure um stopped me in the in the in the hallway and they said maddie we hear you're getting married and is it, uh, this is your first marriage by the way yeah well no my first marriage was was uh, many many years ago okay. in my 20s okay and but uh, uh so carolyn was not present when these these two were uh were were talking to me they said maddie what I can't believe this. You're getting married. You know what that means? Your golf game's going to turn into crap. I mean, you're, you're, you're done, man. And, uh, she was about 30 paces away coming up the hallway and she heard everything they heard. They said, oh, no, and then, no. um, you know, it was sort of an awkward moment, you know, that she came and she, uh, she, I introduced them to these two old guys and, uh, and, uh, she was, she, they were, they were cordial. It kind of straightened up and, and then we left and she pulled me aside about 10 paces, you know, down the hallway. And she looked at me and she pointed her finger at me and she goes, she goes, Matt Chagrew, after we get married, you're not going to get worse. You're not giving up the game because I don't want to be known as the woman who turned Matt Chagrew into a hack. Oh my God. This lady is a legend. Oh my God. It, it, it was it. And you know, I, to be honest with you, Ben, at the time I didn't, I didn't really believe my, my golf was ever coming back. Um, I, I, I was in grad school at the time when we got married, I was, you know, off to becoming a therapist and we'll talk about that later, but, uh, I had no vision of me being great, but she did. And so when we got, had that hug on, uh, on the second, on the, well, the first green of sea Island after I won the playoff, it was really, really special to me. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, you know, because obviously, and you know the story of the, you know, the guy that gets married and the wife won't let him out to go play golf. And, oh, oh you're going to the golf course again? Oh, you're, you know, that's the, I guess, the traditional narrative as for mid-ams and seniors. And, oh, I got to ask the wife if I can go out and play this weekend. And she's, uh, she's, it sounds like to me, she's, you know, she's the, the head, uh, the, the, she's running the company of, of Matt Chagrew, the golfer. I mean, she's, she's the hype man. She's the, the cheerleader. She's everything. She's, she's the general manager, general uh, GM of the squad, even she, better. She's the GM. I mean, you know, uh, I don't play a lot of golf, of golf tournaments, right? Except with her, right? She loves the game. I love going out there and playing golf with her. Uh, so when I do, when I do play in a golf tournament, it, that's when I'm playing golf. And so she wants me, she knows how much I love competitive golf and she knows how important it is, you know, for me to get, to get better. That's all I want to do is just see how good I can get, you know, with seniors, we, we think to ourselves, you know, the clock is ticking, you know, we only got this window of time before my, uh, my skills start to degrade. I've, I fended that off pretty nicely, and I think it's it's largely because uh, Carolyn has encouraged me to 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 do whatever it takes to to see how good I can get. 
Well, I'm sure we will speak about her a little bit later as we kind of recap a little bit of the uh, the last couple holes of the uh, Jones Cup Invitational. But let's go back uh, a little bit. I said a little bit. Even though you're senior am, I'm just going to still stay under good sign. Say we're just going to go briefly back in time here. Uh, always love getting a, a kind of an idea of a person's start in the game. And um, I love I love just all the stories, but you're I'm guessing that from what I know, it really wasn't so much your parents that got you into the game. Um, tell me about Uncle Neil. Oh, well, Uncle Neil was a great uh, athlete himself. Uh, and he he was uh, he was uh, he went to Colgate. Uh, he played hockey and baseball and he actually had professional contracts, I believe, with the Celtics and the Bruins at oh, wow. the same time. This is a long, long time ago. But I was visiting my grandmother in, in uh, Swampscott, Massachusetts, and Neil lives over, my uncle Neil lives in uh, Beverly, Massachusetts, and he's the one who took me out to a, a, this uh, really small uh, driving range uh, in Beverly that had, uh, I remember it had green golf balls, uh, green striped <laughs> golf balls. Oh my gosh. And, um, <laughs> and I was a little tyke, you know, I mean, I was probably eight or nine years old, and um, they didn't have any golf clubs that were my size, so he made the guy, uh, uh, you know, cut one down and, and wrap the leather wrap, or, you know, grip around it. And I went out there and I was hooked. I was hooked. You know, it's one thing to just go out and whack balls. But at some point, if you want to progress to a level where you're playing competitively and the game really gets its hooks into you and it becomes part of your life, there has to be some sort of a formative introduction to competitive golf. And, um, Probably, I mean, would you agree Frank Emmett has to be probably the guy that sets you off in a direction of playing competitive golf? This And this is outside of any, you know, people listening now, they're thinking, okay, well, what AJGA events did this kid play in? And, and what about this? I mean, I know you played in a couple of U.S. juniors, but at that time, there is no AJGA. There's there's there's, right. there's Frank Emmett, a local legend. There was Frank Emmett. Yeah. There was Frank Emmett. Without a doubt, Ben. I mean, in 1969, my parents built a house on the Sixth Fairway Bethesda Country Club, uh, and and Frank Emmett was the the head of the, the Washington uh, Metropolitan Area's uh, Junior Golf Program, and there were a series of of really well run, great junior golf tournaments in the Washington area, including the Marvin Bubby Worsham Tournament, which was held at Bethesda Country Club. Arnold Palmer won that the first year. It was it was uh, it, it was held things uh, at Woodmont Country Club and Springfield Country Club and uh, you know Crofton Country Club. These were great events, and uh, uh, so I my introduction to, to competitive golf was via uh, Frank Emmett, and so I learned a lot uh, from those events, and that that really turned me on to uh, junior golf, and and I won a lot as a young junior, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, that's addictive. You know, you're a young kid and you love the game and you're winning and you're getting a lot of, uh, you know, accolades. Uh, it, it was it was pretty heady times. That's the times where you just get the hot dog and the Coke at the turn and uh, go in the pool afterwards and life is good. That's exactly right. Uh, and that's what my life at Bethesda Country Club was. I, you know, I did there. Uh, now, I did I did caddy there for six dollars uh, for eight per bag. Uh, but I was a young kid. I could only do a single. Sure. And, but when I wasn't playing, I was out on the range shagging balls, uh, 
I, I shagged balls for Dean Beeman, you know, many, many times. Wow. I played golf with him several times. Uh, he was a member there and, um, and I played golf with him numerous times. And, um, you know, that's, that was our life was Bethesda country club. There were no, uh, no trips abroad for the summer. There were no beach homes. There was none of those kind of things. It was, it was Bethesda country club. That was it. Dean Beeman. Wow. That's a name for people listening that are a little bit uh, younger than most. Um, and, and no pun intended, but, uh, you know, what you're watching at the players championship this weekend, as, as we're, we're speaking during the players championship week, everything you're seeing at the players, the purse, the crowds, the tour, everything you're seeing, that starts with Dean Beeman. Would you agree? Oh, I totally agree. I yeah. mean, I remember the days, uh, the day he told me, uh, it was on the fifth fairway at Bethesda Country Club that he was taking the commissioner's job. And oh, I, wow. I, I didn't like that because, uh, <laughs> you know, I followed his, uh, his, his tour career every week, you know, and, um, but he said he just didn't hit the ball long enough. And, um, the courses were getting too long for him and you know he had a he had a good career but he was always fighting to keep his card and uh he but he got this opportunity for the uh, commissioner's job and he took it and um you know little little did we know that stadium golf uh would come into to being uh you know the big thing and um the tour really started to take off then yeah it's so it's so incredible that you know, you're talking about him and not to get off on a tangent, but I mean, a guy that you're saying always struggled to, to keep his card. You know, he qualifies for the Masters 14 times. He's won the USAM twice, British Amateur once. He's a World Golf Hall of Famer. It just kind of shows how difficult this game is and also in what kind of different directions it would it can take you. I mean, these days, I mean, gosh, I can't think of a guy that would have an amateur career like that, that would actually end up being the commissioner of the PGA tour. It's just such as it's the game takes you in such incredible directions. I agree. I mean, he just had a great vision yeah. and, um, and it was, he needed, I, I, I don't think I'm, uh, you know, shocking anybody when I say this, but his vision was that the tour would own their golf courses and right. not have to go uh, get country clubs to agree uh, to give them, you know, to rent it to them. And um, that cut into profits and their ability to, you know, and the other thing too was charity. You know, he was, that, that was a big part of his equation. And um, it, it's, it's really worked out well for these tour players. Oh, yeah. he, I, I actually, uh, actually heard a story from uh, Curtis Strange. He said that when he went out on tour that uh, uh, you actually, they, the tour players had to buy their balls in the, in the, in the pro shops at whatever events they were playing. Can you imagine that going in and paying a, being a tour player and having to, uh, you know, put down a couple bucks to get a, to get a, a token in order to get balls out of the, the ball machine. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's where it was yep. uh, a long time ago. Yep. Yeah. That's where it was now. And now it's, it's a completely different world. Um, well, you, you have this great run as a junior, you play collegiately at the university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, you only played there for a couple of years. Then you transferred to uh, to Maryland, graduated there. But what was, you know, we had a lot of collegiate players that uh, listened to the podcast. What was your college golf experience like at Chapel Hill? Well, I've, I've said this uh, more than once and uh, that I was a terrible failure uh, in, in terms of my college golf career. I, you know, I, I really let a lot of people down, I think. Uh, I was a, 
uh, I had some acclaim as a junior golfer. I was re recruited by a few schools, including the University of North Carolina and some schools like NC State and, and others. Um, uh, but I just didn't perform well there. And I, I, I just don't think I was, uh, uh, I think I was very distracted. I think I probably uh, partied a little bit too much no. on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill. And, uh, and, you know, I don't think I was around that kind of talent. Um, you know, several of my players, of uh, my teammates were uh, either all conference or all conference and all American. And uh, these these were the uh, the elite in college golf, and I just didn't measure up. Um, I had a great time there, but I I didn't play good golf, and I think it kind of I was burned out after my junior golf experience, and then in college, and it was time for me to sort of take some time off from competitive golf, and that's what I did. I mean, for the better part of the next twenty years, I played a few club championships and maybe something here and there, but I was pretty much out of competitive golf, and I was happy to do that. Was there ever a moment when it was really evident, like, wow, I'm, I'm not at their level? My first year there, uh, Frank Fuhrer, who was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was an All-American. And, and uh, uh, you know, I watched his game and I knew I, I didn't measure up to that. But there was also John Magoo, who was a, a multi, multiple year All-American. He was from Mississippi. He tried to be on, on the tour uh, for a while. Frank made it out there. Bill Butner was on the tour for a long time. He was a senior at the time. Um, and uh, Kevin King was a multiple-time All-ACC player. Uh, John Spellman, who won the ACC, is now a, a, a golf professional down in Nashville, Tennessee, was a, just a great a great player. I believe he had honorable mention, All-American honors. It, it, this was a stout team. I think uh, my last year there, they were fourth in the nation. Uh, in the NCAAs. And so I just did not, uh, I just did not measure up to that kind of talent. The, uh, so you moved to move on to university of Maryland and you get, you start a business after college, you, you become a successful insurance exec and business owner for like the next 25 years. And, you know, what's kind of interesting is, you know, when I talk to mid AMS or senior AMS, it seems like they all kind of have the similar, there's like the three different careers. There's the wealth management, there's the real estate, there's insurance, uh, mortgage, you know, there, there's there's those jobs that provide them with the ability and the flexibility to have time to play golf and also have a career. But you started in that, in that insurance realm, but really, I guess you didn't really start playing golf again until you were maybe in your, I mean, playing seriously in your forties. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I mean, the insurance business was, uh, the reason why I got into the insurance business was, uh, uh, I like the recurring revenue aspect of insurance. You sell, yeah. you sell a policy once and, uh, provided you keep getting it renewed, uh, you just, you keep getting income from it. And I, I also like the aspect that you could, you develop the book of business, that had value with, uh, you know, sometimes two, three, four times book value. So um, I, I like I, I that. It also required, you know, strong interpersonal skills. As I assessed myself, I thought, you know, I could do okay in that regard. Um, but, and it was helping people. And these were, these were things that I, you know, you know, felt good about doing. And, uh, um, 
it, and it's not a complicated business. Um, uh, but uh, I built a nice a nice company. I started my company in 98. I worked for others like large national insurance brokers prior to that. So I had to get you know knowledgeable about the business and I did. Uh, but in 98 is when I went out on my own and it, and it worked out pretty nicely. I think part of your great story is the transition in your, your career and then how I believe you would probably agree and how the professional aspect of your life has helped your competitive aspect on the golf course and i love i mean i love this story and this is what i really want to get some information on and and i think the listeners are going to find this interesting too so you have this you know insurance business and this is something that you could probably keep doing until you wanted to retire and just kind of absolutely yeah i mean that you could just ride off into the sunset and take more time off for golf and and you're set and but you completely change careers and you go to graduate school at Virginia Tech to become a clinical psychotherapist. And I, I want to maybe understand what was the start and how did that come into play? Like, you know, it's one thing for someone to be like, all right, well, I'm insurance and I, I think I want to, uh, I don't know, I want to go into wealth management or I want to go into, be, there's all these different directions. How did that direction even come into play for you? Well, I, on the side, I had, was doing some volunteer work right, and I had okay. been doing it for about 10, 10 years or so in, in jails and mental institution, mostly with people that had problems with drug addiction. And uh, I would go on a weekly basis with a group of men into jails and mental institutions and try to help them. I'd give out my phone number and try to help them when they got out. And, um, my sister, Maura, who's my older sister, uh, is a physician and uh, of some note, and she has many partners in her practice. And um, and it, it became uh, uh, pretty evident to them that you know maybe I uh, my calling was in in a different area. Sure. And uh, I got a lot of satisfaction out of this kind of work, and uh, so they encouraged me, including my sister Maura, encouraged me to uh, to look into becoming uh, a therapist. And um, so I investigated it and um, put a plan together and a budget because you don't make a lot of money when you're going through grad school and sure. you don't make any money when you're in your residency. So it was about an eight year plan to get me to private practice wow. where you could actually make some money. Right. And um, so as to the reason I did it, uh, I have to say, I, I wanted something more out of life. I, I wanted, um, I, I liked helping people in this way. Uh, I felt I had something to offer them. I thought it was good at it. I just needed the education to kind of put it all together. And the real question is whether or not uh, any university, let alone one of the top ones in the, in the country like Virginia Tech, would let me in, in their doors because my grades at North Carolina and at Maryland weren't, weren't that great. I mean, I was, I was scared to death to open up my transcripts. Um, in fact, uh, so my, the only way I got in was uh, I had to take the GRE exam. And, oh, uh, no. <laughs> and, I, and I had, I'll, I'll just tell you this story. So the, they, they told me, you got to go take a prep course for the GRE. Um, and I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to be a therapist, I, if they're going to let me into school, 
I got to I got to do well on this GRE exam. So I start the first night at the prep course. It's it's about eight weeks long. It's like three hours every Monday night. And I, I go to my first one. They give me a practice exam and I bombed on it. I, I it was terrible. I, I came within a whisker of not showing up at the next class. Wow. I, I pretty much had I, at different times I wavered. But that week I, I thought to myself, you know, academics isn't for me. Academics isn't for me. I, I, I forget this. This is a pipe dream. No one's going to no. You're going to bomb this test. You got no chance. You know, just just give up. Keep selling insurance. Like you said, you got a nice living. You'll be fine. Well, I kept going, kept studying, and I spent a couple months hard at work trying to get ready for this GRE exam. I sat down at the GRE exam in front of a computer, and there's three parts to the GRE exam. And as soon as you finish the exam, they tell you how you did on the right. first two parts. The last part of it is written. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a written exam, so they don't get your results back for a couple months. And... Uh, when I, when I finished the exam in front of the computer and they popped up my, my scores, I thought there was a computer malfunction. I honestly said to myself, there's no chance that I got scores that high. There's, there's <laughs> absolutely no chance. And I kind of, I'm looking around for the proctor. Right, like, you right. Know, and I asked them, I said, is, there, is it possible this is a malfunction or somebody else's grades came up on my screen? And they're like, no, those are yours. Those are your grades. And I, and I was shocked. I mean, I, I was in one of the highest percentiles of, of all test takers. And then my, my, my written exam came back and I got, I got the 99th percentile on that. And I, I was just shocked by this. And, um, and I thought to myself, I guess, I guess somebody will let me in to grad school. And I applied to Virginia tech. I met with them and, uh, the, Thank God they let me in. I got to spend, you know, essentially four years in, in an incredibly successful uh, program, um, you know, hanging around these incredibly brilliant PhDs and, and, and cohorts, uh, much what I seemed much smarter than me. And um, I, it was the greatest learning experience of my life. And it allowed me to uh, kind of see myself differently. And I got out with this incredibly strong, uh, out of this incredibly strong program after doing really well. And I was off and running. That's an incredible story. And my first thought of, well, first of all, mentioning standardized tests and juries, I actually broke out into a slight sweat there because I started thinking back to my college days and I'm like, <laughs> oh dear God, I could I put something like that in front of me and I would have a meltdown. Um, and I'm also guessing that the amount of parting you did at Virginia Tech was much, much less than what happened at North Carolina. Is that a fair statement? Um, yes, that is that is <laughs> that is probably more than fair. Okay, we'll say it that way. Yes, and absolutely. And how did you know your your thesis was in chronic adult male homelessness? That's right. Homelessness is such a, a severe issue in this country and all over the world, for that matter. Yeah. Do you can you pinpoint how that specific, I guess, thesis and this kind of direction in your education became so important to you? Because, you know, I sure. can understand, you know, marriage counseling, you know, you're married in your early 20s, yeah. you know, family issues, uh, you know, kids, step, you know, step kids, 
uh, you know, divorce, how that fractures a family. I mean, I'm just kind of spitballing. Those are the, the topics that immediately pop into mind. But getting, it sounds like you're working with, with, for the most part, you're working with men that are really, you know, having a very unfortunate part of their life and how to get them back on their feet to be successful people in society. How did that become so attractive to you? Well, I think when it came time to decide what I was going to do my research into and write my thesis, um, which, you know, I had to, to do in order to graduate from this program. Um, I just, you know, asked myself, what am I curious about? And I've always been curious about the, the real chronic homeless that, that what, what they call in, in, in Europe, street dwellers. These are right. the people that, that won't stay in, in the shelters. They're the ones you see under the bridges. And um, because those are the ones I was curious about. Why would they choose to live that way when there were options that, at least to me, seem much more comfortable and better? Right. And that's so it starts with curiosity. And that was what I was curious about. And when I did my research, I hung out at shelters. I interviewed numerous uh, chronic homelessness, homeless men. And um, and I found them fascinating. And my thesis, if I could say so myself, yeah. it was was really interesting. I did a lot of talks uh, afterwards to groups like Volunteers of America in front of their people to let them know that um, that the that the homeless, the, the street dwellers that that popped into their you know day shelters and things like that actually thought this way. I wanted to know, I wanted to get in their minds. I wanted to know if they dreamed. I wanted to know if they aspired to, to be, quote unquote, back in normal society again. Um, and, and they do. And I think the people that were serving this population at the time got a lot out of my thesis. I'm, I, I'm proud to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because most people, I guess, would see someone that's homeless and they think, oh, that that's a- you know, that, that person has a drug problem. That person is an alcoholic. That person is too lazy to aspire to anything else in life. And you're, from what I'm hearing, you're saying that, no, they did have aspirations. And it sounds like they did have a thought process as to why they wanted to live that way. Is that kind of what you're saying? They did. They did. I mean, they planned. They, they're like, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and do that. And then I'm going to get back to uh, where I was. Uh, they do think that way. Um, and, um, you know, they just wanted their, they just wanted their normal life back. You know, many of these people that, that lived out on the street, like street dwellers, uh, sure. There was, there was a lot of schizophrenia. There was a lot of, uh, of drug addiction. Sure. Um, but when you sifted through that or, you know, uh, interviewed around that, uh, there was a lot of humanity there. And, um, I I was, I was really, uh, uh, pleased with what I found out. And it, it, you know, it was an entire summer of hanging out in, in shelters and, um, with homeless people that were living under bridges and things like that. I have to say my, 
my wife, Carolyn, wasn't uh, too happy about it at times uh -huh. when I would uh, tell her where I was and what I was doing. But um, it was a it was a great experience. And um, and I'll never forget it. I think it's re it's really informed um, my practice as a therapist um, and it's made me a better therapist. Wow. What a life experience that must be. I mean, forget about career implications and where, I mean, that's just, that had to been a hell of a time. Had been a it hell was. Of a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want to pivot a little bit here. Obviously you're talking about your, your career of being a, a counselor, being a therapist, but also your, there's a arm of your, uh, practice where that, that deals with sports performance. So we're going to easily get into that a little bit later, but, uh, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, you're getting back into the game, starting to kind of play a little bit uh, as you're entering your 40s. And there's, you know, there's that difficult spot where if you were a competitive golfer, it's very hard, as you said earlier, you know, it's hard to just play knock around casual golf without mm -hmm. at some point the trigger goes off saying, all right, I'm, I'm better than this. I need more out of my game. I need more out of golf than just uh, you know, a casual Sunday game where, where who cares what you shoot. When did you start getting yourself back into, okay, I'm in my forties. Uh, the senior golf is on the horizon. Let's get started. Can you pinpoint when that kind of took place? Well, it, it, there were some twists and turns. I mean, when I picked up the game again, I was terrible. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I couldn't, I could literally not break 80. Um, wow. I, 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 uh, it was embarrassing. And um, the real question I had for myself at the time was, you know, uh, had my relationship changed with golf over the past 20 years that I had been away from it? Um, did I, was I going to enjoy the game again? Because I certainly wasn't when I left it. Um, right. um, and the answer to that was, so the answer to that was, it was the same relationship. You know, when I played poorly, I, I was miserable when I thought that if I played well, people would like me more. Yeah. So to, I realized, I realized in that five or six years before I went to grad school that while my game was getting a little bit better, I still did not enjoy it. I still, I still had, the, I was still hung up on, um, on golf being too much of my, um, of who I saw myself as. Yep. Um, and I was a bit haunted, I think by, um, by, you know, some, some old, old tapes that, that, that said, you know, you, you didn't amount to anything. You had a lot of talent and you wasted it. And, um, so, uh, you know, while I played, uh, you know, better, I made some USGA championship. I was not in the, in the early two thousands, I was not competitive. Um, and I don't think I was enjoying the game any, any differently than I was when I was in college. And so when I went to grad school, you know, I went to grad school, um, I had to put the clubs down. It's too much work. Plus sure. I was running my company. It was too much work. And um, I put the clubs down and something kind of happened, you know, after or during my grad school experience. I think I, I think I just um, I had a psychic rearrangement is what I would call it. And okay. when I came out of grad school, 
I had a successful graduate school experience. I was in my residency. I felt good about my, what I was doing. And golf had taken a different place in my life. And now it didn't matter if I played well. You know, I kind of I kind of reauthored a new story about myself. I wasn't the the golfer who didn't make much out of some talent that I was given at a young age. I was now somebody who went back to school and was now a pretty good therapist and was able to help people. And when I picked up the clubs again, almost miraculously from the start, I, I was a different golfer. I just, I, I think the first tournament I played in, in 2013, was the U.S. Senior Open Qualifier. And um, I shot 66 and won it by three and ended up going out to Omaha for the yeah. U.S. Senior Open. And, uh, and then <laughs> things back. just, yeah. yeah, welcome back. And then, and then I just got better and better and better from there. And I think it's, I like to say the less I care, the better I play. And that's really been true for me. You know, it's funny. I think just by listening to you that you going with your, going with a career path that is giving you such fulfillment and enjoyment, you're not trying to you're not putting so much pressure on your golf, you know, prowess to validate your, I guess, feeling in life where, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of something where, all right, my, my day job is, is average and maybe my relationships at home are average, but if I go shoot 70 today, everything's okay. Cause I'm a good golfer. And that's great if you're doing that all the time, but no one's doing that all the time. That's just a dangerous place to be in. And I think that's that can relate to anything, whether you're a college player, we're like, man, my grades are struggling. But if I could just go out and and help the team and shoot 66, then then people will look at me as a as a success. And that's just not a healthy way to, to have a relationship with the game of golf. I, I totally agree. You know, I work with a lot of young players, um, high school, college players, and um, I'm always on the lookout for players that are putting enormous pressure on themselves. Right. And, um, and this of course affects their performance. I mean, when they picked up the game and they just had a free and a free feeling about the game, they just thoroughly enjoyed it and they got better and better and better. But now suddenly some of these young players, they, it's almost as if they think that if I play good golf, people will love me. Yeah bad golf they won't love me and that's a really stark place to be and so i try to help them kind of rearrange that perspective to some to get to a place where they can comfortably um and energetically approach the game because in the end um i mean when it comes to goal setting then i i have one goal and that is i want to get better and I want to see how good I can get. That's it. Those are my two goals. Sure. I'd love to win a, a, a USGA championship. Uh, I've come close a couple of times. Uh, th that's in the back of my mind. But my real goal is I just want to see how good I can get. And as long as that's it, I, I, I do believe that facilitates me getting better. I, I really do. I think the whole, the pressurized environment of results and I've got to meet this standard or this person's expectation uh, on golfers, that doesn't work out too well. 
that doesn't work out too well. And I find that a lot in my sports practice. Yeah. And, and the other, <clears throat> excuse me. And the other thing that you're talking about too is, and golf is such a difficult game because everything is measured by numbers. You have to shoot this number to win or this number to qualify, this number to advance. Is there a common thread that you're seeing with, um, with collegiate players, with young professionals that you work with? Is there a common thread that you're feeling that you're constantly having to kind of break, break down for them and, and break them of bad habits? Sports performance uh, and the anxiety that comes with it is pretty much across the board the same yeah. for, for everybody. Um, but remember what makes up anxiety is generally their thoughts or beliefs about yourself or about your situation or whatever. They have real consequences. You know, if they're negative, if your beliefs are irrational, uh, then your performances are going to suffer. So I, the common theme I would say is that, um, you know, what if, what if I don't play well? Right. What, what if, what if I don't get my scholarship? What if, uh, what if I don't make the cut this week? You know, uh, it's, there's a lot of catastrophic thinking out there that contributes to performance anxiety. And, uh, what I try to do with them is, 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 is help the player, the athlete, see it and intervene and, and change it a little bit. Um, and that's that's essential in order for them to play the best that they can play. You're opening up a lot of different ideas and thoughts and questions. So we're, this this episode, we're we're a little bit off on a tangent, but it's all good. It's all related, and it's all it's all great. My first the thought that just popped into my head was, do you see? I mean, you have to have the the physical skill to qualify for these USGA championships and to win what you want. I mean, you're a you're a Maryland and Virginia senior open champion you, you clearly have rebuilt your game and that does take athletic ability but is there any way you get anywhere close to the success you've achieved if you had not made the career change and pivot to counseling and and um you know sports performance is there any way you're even close i, I don't think so i think uh i think there are two sort of seminal moments in my life one was uh, putting the clubs down for the second time and going to grad school and um, learning that I, I, I was really someone different than I thought I was, um, wow. that I, I was an academic. Um, I, do, I, I can write. Uh, I can think critically. Um, I can hang out and hold my own with you know, all of these big-brained PhDs who are wonderful people um, and I could help people um, using my knowledge uh, and application of psychology. That was one. I think the second thing is, uh, was meeting Carolyn and, um, and realizing that, um, you know, I could be a great, I could be a good spouse. And, um, and she made it okay for me to aspire uh, to be a good golfer. And I didn't know where that journey was is going to go. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, I never dreamed it would, it would get to this point um, where I was playing as well as I am at this point. I have literally uh, gotten better, a little bit better every year, except for, you know, we'll probably talk about the injury stuff, but 
you know, when I was down for those injuries, but I have gotten better every year. And I think it's because um, I just have the right mental approach to the game. It, it allows me to see how good I can get. Wow. Well, that's very inspirational and, and hopefully it's, well, I know it is. It's, it's great. Uh, it's great information for people that are out there and, you know, trying to not, like you said, it's one thing to get better, but you also need to find enjoyment and find that good relationship and good balance with the game. So it doesn't affect other areas of your life uh, adversely. Now you mentioned these injuries and look, injuries are part of golf. It's a part of sports. It's a part of getting older. Uh, you know, go down yeah. the line. Everyone's got the the bad back and the, the, this and the, I mean, everyone's got them, but <laughs> and I'm not, right. I'm not laughing at your physical limitations. That's not what I'm doing, but right. um, your injury that you dealt with, with your, with your elbow, uh, mm -hmm. with your right elbow, that kind of, I mean, really kind of came to a, a turning point and really kind of came to an issue of all places. It comes in the final round of the British senior amateur so give me a little bit of, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say I love this story, but it's not, but it's just, it's a very interesting one of how you really overcame something that you, I guess, thought was going to end your, end your career of playing golf in any respect, not just competitively, but you didn't think you were going to play golf again, did you? No, no. Uh, All right. I got to hear this one. I, I, I've read this story. I think I know most of it. But I, we got to go to the source. So when did the the first issue of your right elbow, the first injury, kind of happen? I'd say January of 2019. Uh, you know, I was working out in the gym, throwing a heavy ball against the wall, um, and I felt something in my my right elbow. Um, I didn't think, didn't do anything about it. Took a few Advil. Um, sure. You know, a month or two later, um, you know, we're staring at the uh, I wasn't playing in the Jones Cup at that point, I don't think. Um, and but I'm staring at the playing at the Coleman and, and that's all I can think about. Um, and I've got an exemption, I think, into the U.S. Senior Am later that year. And I'm looking forward to going to Scotland to, to play in the, the at North Berwick in the senior amateur over oh, there. Wow. I got all these I got I got all these, you know, great trips ready to go. And I. And, um, like the first of April and I'm, I'm like, you know, maybe I should go see a doctor about this because it was pretty inflamed. I'm, I'm probably taking, uh, at least, um, I would say at least 2,400 milligrams of Advil a day. Just, just to flat mad. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, tw that's like 12 Advil a day. Yeah. It's all, it's oh all, my God. you know, you, you read that you read the, you read the the uh, the, the bottle. That's it. that's how much you can take, right? So, right. It's a it's a lot of Advil. It's a lot of Advil, but I think this goes to the psychology of the situation, which is whatever it took, I was going to play, and uh, I was going to play in the in the Coleman. I was going to play in the Senior Open Qualifier. I was going to play in the U.S. Senior Amateur. I was going to play in, in all these events. This is what I lived. for. Right. This is, this is what I wanted. And, uh, so I go to this doctor and he gets an MRI and he says, you're, it's torn. This tendon's torn. You, you need a surgery. It's a relatively simple surgery. I said, but it'll keep you out for about 10 or 11 months. Oh. I'm like, I can't do that. Yeah. I can't do that. 
I have to play. Can't we just postpone the surgery to the fall? He goes, well, we could try, um, but I, you know, I can shoot it with cortisone. I said, shoot me, shoot me, doc. Keep me in the, keep me in the game. And that's what I did. And that's what I did. I kept taking Advil. I kept, I took the shots of cortisone. I kept playing. I was playing great. I was playing really well and I'm over in Scotland and I'm just in the practice rounds and in the first two rounds, I'm leading, you know, all the time, the whole time I'm, I'm leading after two days and I'm in the final group with my friend, Gene Elliott in, in, in a twosome at one o'clock going off at North Barrick, right on the ocean there in Scotland. And I, on the first hole, I hit it to about a foot and I make birdie. So now I've got a, even a bigger lead, right? So a couple shots, maybe. Second hole, you got to hit it over the ocean to get it into the fairway. I hit it over the ocean into the fairway, and I hit my second shot, and my elbow just felt like it exploded. I became nauseous, and I knew something really bad happened, which it did. And um, and I, uh, the the RNA stopped the event. They brought out medics. They uh, they gave me a bag of ice, two Advil, and two Tylenol, and uh, I I wanted to. I wanted to finish. My wife was there. Carolyn was there. I, I brought my friend Pat Bettingfield to caddy for me. I was not going to quit. So I struggled in. I finished 10th. Um, and when I got back to the States, I went to a different doctor. And um, and he gave me the news. And the news was that uh, that I had torn uh, torn the tendon on both ends. And it was now inoperable. And I, uh, I would likely not play well or any golf again. Wow. And that was a shock. That was a shock. Just so I know, which this was this 2019 or this is 2019 senior amateur, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I did, when I got back from Scotland, I asked the doctor, this first doctor, to shoot me up again so I could play in the senior amateur the next week. This oh. is how crazy oh, I was. All right. So, yeah, you've gone off the reservation with that. So you're, Totally. Okay. So the, totally. el- the elbow explodes. Now, he just said that, or the doctor said, it's inoperable. There's nothing they can do to fix this. Well, right. now I'm obviously and everyone listening is kind of figuring all right how does this guy go from basically an exploded elbow that can't work anymore to reinventing a career and it's not like you're 19 years old getting a new acl i mean you're in your 50s and maybe early well you're in your early 60s aren't you so I'm, I'm, i'm 60 yep okay so yeah so you're you're at that age and all right so let's keep this story going how do they rebuild your elbow so that you can play golf again let alone any golf, but golf at a high level. Well, the, the, the surgeon at, at uh, Anderson Orthopedic, uh, pretty, pretty famous uh, fellow who's really good at his job. His name is um, Dr. Samir, Ag- uh, Dr. Samir Nagda. Um, he said there was nothing he could do for me at this time. Um, but he suggested that I consider um, uh a procedure that was done by uh, or done at uh, the Mayo Clinic. Um, and it's called a tenotopy with PRP. And um, turns out there is, there is a, a doctor uh, in Northern Virginia who is familiar with that procedure. His, his name was Dr. Gary Ho. And Dr. Ho uh, 
you know, after, after numbing my elbow, uh, proceeded to take a four and a half inch needle and uh, pulverize my, my elbow. Oh my God. And um, the, the theory being that, uh, the, that by, by recreating an acute injury, the body releases what are called healing factors. And uh, this would restart the healing process that I had ruined when I had taken so much Advil and had taken so much cortisol. Right, right. So he goes in there and he, he starts pounding away and uh, for about 40 minutes. And now he put in, you know, most people get inflammatory substance put into them to, to help heal them. I, he, put, he pumped in uh, inflammatory substances to make it worse. And um, uh, while he's banging on the bone, he's banging on the, the tendon, he's banging on everything. Uh, on you know there was a there was a uh, a camera involved in this whole thing so there were pictures of my elbow up on the on the wall while he was doing this which was kind of gross but um he uh are you awake for the, this. are you awake for this by the way i was oh, i was God. and the needle the needle and the syringe are about eight inches from my nose because i'm laying down and oh okay and he's, oh god yeah so you can hear it it's 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 uh it's really something but you know, like I said, I I wasn't going to ever play again. So um, if this is what I needed to do, this is what I was going to do. And so Dr. Ho went at it and um, he seemed confident that, that I could heal from this way. And so I left uh, the hospital at that time. Uh, and there was, you know, it was really like a, a small grapefruit had been stuffed in my my elbow it was grotesque and um uh they waited a week and i started uh, physical therapy and then i began physical therapy for three and a half months and uh uh you know after three and a half months uh, the doctors including dr nagda and dr ho got together and they decided to repeat the process <laughs> so what they decided to repeat the process because said, because you know, the first we think one we should do it again because the first one really didn't take is that basically what they're thinking no, they saw a lot of progress. Oh, okay. Um, and, but they felt like, well, you know, if one's good, maybe two's better, but we won't do more than two is what they said. So they, I went back on the table and they, they did it more. They did it more. And my elbow, you know, I left again with an, another small grapefruit. And I did another three and a half months of, of, uh, of PT. And, um, and at the end of that, uh, you know, we started the assessment process. And uh, Dr. Nagda told me to go out and hit a few shots on the ground because he couldn't operate um, because of COVID. Right. Um, and so that's when I went out and hit a few shots on the grass. And, and, uh, and I haven't looked back since. It just got a little bit better every week. And I started playing again. And uh, here I am today. Now, now, Matt, I mean this with all disrespect. You're you're a very nice guy, and it's a great story. But you're you're kind of a maniac. <laughs> I mean, this is this is nuts. I mean, this is I mean to go to that extent to play. You're basically. I mean, it, was there a chance that through this procedure they could have done more damage to the elbow where you're like severely incapacitated? 
Um, I trusted these doctors. Okay, I good, felt, answer. I, <laughs> good answer. I felt like I had to. Yeah, I, right. I felt like I had no option uh, but to trust them. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, after the first uh, tenotomy, uh, after three and a half months, it felt pretty good. Felt even felt pretty good, and I thought, you know, we were on the right track. Um, yeah, I was a little bit nervous about agreeing to do the second one, but um, you know, I'm I'm glad I I went ahead with it, and it's it's worked out really well. But I, the lesson here is um, the patient shouldn't be dictating the treatment. You know, when I was back there in April of 2019, and I'm basically begging for the doctor to give me shots. Right. You're self-diagnosing um, almost, and you're you're running the show. I'm running the show, and I'm taking all this Advil, and I'm, you know, that that was insane. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to really look at that, and I did. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've looked at that. I treat myself a little bit differently now when it comes to injuries. I, I bet your stomach lining is thanking you a lot right now because that is a – ridiculous amount of Advil. I mean, that's like NFL football player level stuff. Sure. Oh my sure. God. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't take Advil anymore. <laughs> um, so that tells you something. I, I, you know, and I, I don't, um, I don't just go to, uh, to the Advil box uh, every time I feel an ache and pain because I know these types of drugs. Um, well, they're, they're learning more and more. So you fight your way back from this uh, from this injury. I'm glad you shared the entirety of the story because it's just absolutely fascinating. And you start fighting your way back, and you're finding again you're kind of picking up right where you left off. You have these these uh, re these really close calls at um, you know the se senior British Am in 2015. You're a runner up. You're a runner up in 2016 at the U.S. Senior Am, and again you're getting your your skill set back you're you're improving your game and how much do you rely on your experience as a sports performance coach you know the easy question is how how like i asked you before how much do you attribute that to your success but i want to know how much you attribute that to recovering from a close loss or a you know a crushing defeat to then have you get right back into the fire and chase after it again? You know, I think I was given a gift of desperation. You know, somebody walked in my door one day and said the game that I really do love um, was now being taken away. And, um, and plus, I have the gift of working with a lot of couples and a lot of families and a lot of individuals that are suffering and have real problems in their, in their lives. And uh, it's hard not to go through those two experiences and not have the right perspective about golf. If right. you're given a second chance. And I use that, I use that. Um, and I think, for example, at the, at the, the Jones cup last week. Um, I was, I felt very calm out there and I think it's part of it. It was important to me. I wanted to win, but 
this wouldn't be the end of the world right? Uh, if I didn't. And those close calls before, um, you know, I had to do some work around that uh, to, to kind of um, frame it in the right way so that I could learn from it and get better. Um, but I think it all kind of came together last week at the, at the Jones cup. Um, and, uh, I, so I, I think that's, a, if you want to say I have a competitive advantage because I went through these experiences and I do what I do. Uh, first of all, again, you know, fantastic win at Jones cup senior. I you know that, Thank you. that final round really when, you know, we had dealt with really tough weather that first round and then that final round really to come out hot when you knew that everyone else was going to do that as well. Uh, really just a tremendous final round. So you're obviously the, the reigning champion, going to come back next year and defend. What do you have for the rest of this year as far as your competitive schedule? Where uh, where will we kind of see you next? My sights are set now on playing in the Coleman uh, Invitational, which is um, – played at Seminole um, and that's just a great week with a, a really strong field. Yeah. Um, uh, from there, uh, I, I'm planning to play in the Thomas uh, Invitational, which is at LA Country Club. Nice place um, as well. Yeah, nice place. And then um, if it works out, I, I hope Carolyn and I can go to um, Doorknock at, and, and play at Royal Doorknock in the uh, – the senior am there this year and that's that's really what we're looking forward to and then if i uh, uh i'm hoping that with uh, my recent play i'm i'm able to solidify um an, an exemption into the u.s senior amateur which is uh this year at Catanzit, which is on cape cod and um, um that that really is a, a great a great summer uh, that sounds like year. a lot of fun yeah, that's what I'm, I'm. That's the great thing about senior amateur golf. I mean, we don't get paid much to offset these expenses, you know. <laughs> so you better uh, you better love uh, the places that you're going to, and you know that schedule I just gave you is a dream schedule. I mean, I'm yeah. just thrilled and excited to be able to go to these places and be invited and be able to to compete. Uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes that I picked up at Jones Cup was talking to Eddie Hargett after uh, after the first round. And he shot that incredible seventy during that first day, which, as mm. you well know, that weather on the first day was absolutely brutal. And yep. I asked him, like, "All right, what are you doing the rest of the day?" He's like, "Man, this is senior golf. I'm going to get something to eat and go take a nap." And uh, <laughs> I, I, I just can't. I I love that quote. So yeah, senior golf. I mean, well, what do, what do you do after? I mean, typically after you get done playing, you're not beating tons of balls, I would imagine. No, no, can't do that. Um, no, put the feet up, um, check some emails, There you go. Uh, do a little, do a little work. Um, you know, when you're at sea Island, you know, there's some, some nice places to see oh, around yeah. there. So no, you, you gotta, when you're a senior, you don't beat balls anymore. No. Uh, that, that, that you, you pay the price the next day, uh, with in your game. Yep. Yep. Well, I want to close this episode out again. You're you're a sports performance coach. A lot of the guests that I have on this podcast are collegiate players. A lot of the listeners are juniors or parents of juniors. And again, they're facing a lot of the same things that you have faced in your career. 
Um, you've worked through them. You've worked on a way to identify them and overcome them. And, uh, you know, without mentioning names of who you work with, is there perhaps a story about a player that you work with where what you've done and what you've accomplished with this player might be beneficial to players that would listen to this story? Sure. Um, one of the common complaints that I get from younger players is, is they, they feel like they can't close out a good round or close out a win when they're in contention, like the last three or four holes, they seem to make a lot of mistakes. And so, um, so what I helped this particular player do was um, to use every tool available to them to regulate their emotions. Cause you know, in golf, there's really three things you have to do. You have to, you have to be able to control your golf ball. It, you know, you have to be able to make really good decisions um, in, in a few, just in a few seconds on every shot. And then you have to be able to regulate your emotions because um, you're going to get excited, especially when you're coming down the stretch. So he was just getting too excited. Um, I call it excitement, not anxiety. He right. was just too excited. You know, if you get too excited in golf, your mechanics will break down and you'll probably make some bad decisions. You'll pick the wrong line. You'll get too aggressive, whatever. Try to pull a shot off that you uh, don't normally uh, try to hit, you know, something like that. So what we were trying to do is get him to calm himself down when he felt something in his body telling that he was uh, getting too jacked up. And, um, so uh, what, what, we, what I trained him to do was do a walking meditation. Um, he hits the ball 300 yards. So there's some time that he has between the time he hits the ball, walks off that tee box, and gets to his ball. And so um, I, we, we actually get him to close his eyes while he's walking, maybe enough so he doesn't trip over anything. Sure. And then put all of his focus on on his feet, all of his, all of his attention are the sensations in his feet. He can feel the grass of the close, closely mowed grass. Then he moves into the, the rough and then across a, a gravel uh, cart path and then back into the rough and then into the closely mown fairway and the ups and downs of the closely mown fairway. Imagine if he walks 300 yards trying to focus entirely on the sensations in his feet. By the time he gets to the ball, um, he's completely calmed his, himself down. His neurochemistry in his brain has changed substantially. He's now able to focus. And from there, it's all about uh, the shape, trajectory, and target. And he gets in his pre-shot routine and then hits the shot at the target. So the, these are the kind of things I try to help uh, teach players uh, when they get a little bit too excited uh, during the rounds. So they help them close out the rounds or win a tournament. And it sounds so simple, Matt. <laughs> when you describe it, it's almost like you're, <laughs> yes, hip you're, you're hypnotizing me as I'm listening to it. And it makes perfect sense. That's the truth. I mean, what are your options? I mean, if, if you can tell that you're getting too excited, you know, you get the knots, the butterflies in yeah. your stomach. In my case, when I'm getting too excited, my my 
my walk gets kind of um, uh, different. I, right. I, I start to get some sensations in my legs. Uh, you know, it, I know that's my signal. And when that happens, the only way you're going to get your brain back is to distract it. And that's what a mindfulness walking meditation does. And um, I don't care if you're listening to the birds and all the various sounds between shots or you're putting all your focus on the sensation in your feet, you must distract yourself so that your, your brain and all that neurochemistry can reset itself to where you can focus again. So, Matt, um, you know, obviously a lot of college players, a lot of junior players, as I said, you know, follow the back of the range. And naturally, I can think that uh, you could possibly help out some players. So what is the best way for players to learn more about you and your your your, your practice, your service, or whatever you want to call it? What's the best way for players to, to learn more about you? I think they should just go to my website, matchtogrew.com, and they can contact me through – uh, by email through that website, I'm 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 happy for the uh, for the plug, Ben. Thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to any to helping anybody who you know wants to reach out and contact. Well, you talked about closing and helping people close. I can't think of a better way to close out this episode. Um, wow, Matt, I I got to thank you, man. The, you know this this conversation may have started, or listeners may have thought that we're just going to talk to the to the Jones Cup Senior Invitational Champion and hear about how he won this championship at Sea Island, but he gave us a, a he gave us a lot more. So I really appreciate the information that you shared. Glad to do it. Yeah, and I love I love the story. And uh, best of luck the rest of the summer. Um, gonna have a great summer, it sounds like. And hope we can do this again soon and catch up later. I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range. It's great to be on Back of the Range, Ben, and I look forward to doing it again with you sometime. There you have it. Special thanks to Matt Chagru for joining me on this episode here at the Back of the Range. Lots of great information in this one. Wow. Make sure you check out his website, mattchagru.com. Let him know that I sent you there. Make sure you're following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Remember, every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time here at the back of the ranch.